Well, please do open in your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 3. Our sermon text this morning is Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 4. Our text is very closely related to the verses that come immediately before it uh, in chapter 2. So in a moment, I'll read from Colossians 2, 20 to 3, 4. beginning in chapter 2, verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in provoking self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Thanks be to God for his life-giving word. Well, one of the Christian authors whose life and ministry I most admire was a man named David Pallison. David Pallison lived from 1949 uh, to 2019. Pallison has been described as the Yoda of the biblical counseling movement. He was a man mighty in the scriptures, and as a result, he was a man who knew the human heart intimately. When I read David Pallison's writings, I feel like he was spying on my brain right before he wrote. Among Pallison's famous writings is a now famous article entitled, X-Ray Questions, Drawing Out the Whys and Wherefores of Human Behavior. The article, X-Ray Questions, was intended to help believers understand why they do what they do. Why do we get angry? Why are we addicted? Why do we say things we shouldn't? Why do we struggle in our relationships? When the article Pallison lists uh, about a zillion questions that function as x-ray scans of our hearts and our minds. They help us see what's going on beneath the surface of our words and actions. Let me now read to you some of David Pallison's x-ray questions. And as I do, friend, let me just invite you to consider your own honest answers uh, to these questions. Let me invite you to take an x-ray now of your own heart. Here are David Pallison's questions. What do you love? What do you hate? What do you want, desire, crave, lust, and wish for? Where do you bank your hopes? What makes you tick? 
What sun does your planet revolve around? What lights up your world? What food sustains your life? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, security? Whose performance matters? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? Who must you please? Whose opinion of you counts? What do you think about most often? What preoccupies or obsesses you? In the morning, where does your mind drift instinctively? What are your characteristic fantasies? Last one. How do you define who you are? It is an uncomfortably insightful set of questions. Uh, David Pallison understood that if you're after deep change in your behavior, these are the questions that you have to reckon with, the questions that reveal your heart. Uh, David Pallison was a helpful biblical counselor because he understood that our lives flow out of our heart's answers to questions like these. Our words, our choices, our habits, our attitudes, our emotions, our body language, our sins, our obedience, they flow from what our hearts treasure and what our minds fixate upon. David Pallison understood this, I reckon in part, because he was a careful student of the Apostle Paul, who had taught the same things long before. Uh, In our sermon text this morning from Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, Paul starts to turn toward a section of Colossians focused on practical Christian living. Uh, Lord permitting, in coming weeks, uh, we'll study Paul's divinely inspired instructions about personal holiness, about relationships in the church, about marriage, about parenting, about being a child, about labor, about work relationships, about relationships to unbelievers, about prayer. But before Paul dives into any of that, here right at the beginning of Colossians 3, Paul addresses the affections and the attention of our hearts and our minds. Paul gives us two imperatives or two commands in these four verses. And our obedience to these two commands really will determine whether we can make meaningful progress in any other matters of the Christian life. Look there at the words that Paul uses to make these commands. His first command is there in verse one. You see that word? Seek. Seek. You could translate that word more freely. Orient your life around desire, pursue. What's the second command? Is there in verse two? Set your minds, right? In other words, think intently and regularly about. Frame your thinking in light of. Be preoccupied with. Paul's commands are verbs of the heart, verbs of the mind, what our heart seeks, what our minds are set on, that's what shows up in these x-ray questions that I've read to you. That's what's really going on with you. 
Before Paul tells us how to live the Christian life, he tells us what our hearts must seek and what our minds must be set upon. Lord willing, we're going to spiral in on Paul's answer to that question. What must our minds be set upon? What must our hearts seek? We'll spiral in on an answer this morning. It might feel like a bit of a slow start as we dive in here, uh, but please stay with me. I trust that it'll all click at the end. So, Lord willing, this will be a shorter sermon than usual. Shorter, I say, than usual. But I don't think it'll click right till the very end. Three points this morning. I'll frame each point as a question. First point, what does Paul tell us about the Lord Jesus in this passage? What does he tell us about the Lord Jesus? A second point, what does Paul tell us about ourselves if we're in the Lord Jesus, if we are believers? What does Paul tell us about ourselves? A third point, what does Paul tell us to do in consequence? What does Paul tell us to do as a result of what he's just told us about Jesus and ourselves. So first point, what does Paul tell us about the Lord Jesus? Well, the first thing we need to see about Jesus in this passage is actually implicit within our sermon text, but it's stated very explicitly there in Colossians 2:20. The first thing you need to see about Jesus is that Jesus has died. Jesus has died. Look there at the first few words of chapter 2 verse 20. Paul says, "If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Uh, clearly, Paul is asserting that Jesus has, in fact, died. And here's why that matters. Uh, we, unlike Jesus, are all born destined to die. Uh, currently, the international death rate in first, second, and third world countries is 100%. Everyone dies. And God's word tells us why human death is in the world. The Bible teaches that God, the God who made the world and rules over it, that he is the source of all true life. In Jeremiah 29, 13, God calls himself the fountain of living waters. As Psalm 36, 9 says of God, with you is the fountain of life. God is the source of all true life. And because God is the source of all true life, you and I were created to find true life in relationship with God. Knowing God was to be our highest joy. A loving God was meant to be our deepest motive. Trusting God was meant to make us secure. Uh, receiving God's favor was meant to ground our sense that we're okay, uh, that we are approved because God approves of us. All right, think back to those x-ray questions for a minute. Uh, we were created to operate in such a way that our answers to those x-ray questions center on God our creator. You remember the questions? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape? Well, we were created to say with the psalmist from our Old Testament reading, God will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. We were meant to find true life, true security in God. 
some more of those questions. What lights up your world? Well, Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whose opinion of you counts? We didn't get to read this verse, but Psalm 27, verse 10. The psalmist says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. God's opinion of me counts. That's what makes me okay. You remember the last question? How do you define who you are? Psalm 27, 9, the psalmist says, God, turn not your servant away in anger. Who am I? I am a servant of the living God. That's how I define who I am. God is the source of all true life, and we were meant to find life in relationship with him. But if I am honest, more often than I would like to admit, uh, those x-ray questions reveal in me a heart that is not oriented rightly toward God. When you x-ray my heart, often it is preoccupied with created things rather than the creator. Right? It's someone else's opinion of me that counts. It's a job or an activity or a recreation or a relationship or money. That's what lights up my world. It's my own distinct contributions and achievements. That's what defines who I am. Well, one of the words that the Bible uses for this substitution of created things for God is the word sin. Sin. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. You can see why, right? Because sin cuts us off from the God of life. The reason that physical death among humans is in the world, the Bible teaches, is that the sovereign God of the world has cursed the world as a result of man's sin. That's why death is in the world. And surely, friends, you can also see how sin brings a kind of death even while we're still alive, right? Haven't you noticed that the more you lean on something that isn't God to give you what only God can, I'm sure you've noticed that leads to breakdown and frustration and disappointment and emotional and relational catastrophe, Sin brings death even before this life is over. And the Bible also makes clear that unrepentant sin will meet with God's judgment forever in hell, which is what Revelation calls the second death. It's not some scary and irrational punishment dreamt up by men to control people. It's the reality, the ultimate outcome of the reality that sin cuts us off from the God of life is death. And so actually, it is wonderful news that as Paul says, Jesus has died. Because you see, unlike us, Jesus never sinned. Jesus lived here on earth, but he never once cut himself off from the fountain of life up in heaven. What if you had asked Jesus those x-ray questions? Jesus, what food sustains your life? 
John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus, who must you please? Jesus, whose opinion of you counts? John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Through his perfect relationship with the God of life, Jesus earned eternal life. But Jesus died. Jesus died not as one who deserved death, not in an accident, not in a tragedy. Jesus died as a willing substitute the Bible teaches, 2,000 years ago. And as he died on a cross, killed as a criminal, Jesus took on himself the curse of death that you and I had earned through our sin so that anyone who would turn from sin and believe in Jesus Christ who died and rose from the dead would receive from Jesus everlasting life forgiveness of sins, a restored relationship with the God of life. Friend, if you have any questions about that, please don't leave before talking to someone this morning. There's nothing more important than knowing the God of life through Jesus Christ who died. The first thing we need to see about Jesus in this passage is that Jesus died. The second thing we need to see about Jesus in this passage is that Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised. Look at Colossians 3 verse 1. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Paul there is referring to the fact that because Jesus was totally obedient to the God of life, even in his death, in the words of Philippians 2, because Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore, Because of his obedience to the God of life, God has highly exalted him. God has rewarded Jesus' obedience with eternal life. As we saw in the glorious song in Colossians chapter 1 that Paul wrote about the Lord Jesus, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the first fruits of the resurrection. But wait a minute. I thought there were other people in the Bible who rose from the dead right before Jesus. Wasn't there that widow in the Old Testament, Elijah or Elisha, right? And Lazarus, didn't Jesus raise Lazarus before he himself died? Well, here's why Jesus is still the firstborn from the dead. Because he is the first one alive with heavenly life. Lazarus, the widow's son, they came back to earth with their old life. We are safe to assume that they died again. Jesus came alive with life from God, with eternal life, with resurrection life, with indestructible life that never dies again. And that's why Jesus can save anyone who will trust in him. Because although he is in heaven rather than on earth, he's alive. And he's mighty to dispense mercy to anyone who will turn to him. Jesus has died. And Paul says that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Picking up the pace here. Third thing we need to see about Jesus in this passage is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. That's right there at the end of verse 1. Verse 1 says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Psalm 110, uh, the scriptures had spoken of a coming priest king, of someone who would come both to rule God's people with unending authority, an eternal king, and someone who would serve as an eternal priest to mediate God's presence to his people, to reconcile them to himself. And Psalm 110 teaches very clearly that this priest king, when he came, would sit at the right hand of God himself. That is to say, this priest king would sit on a throne of preeminence, a throne of authority as one whose rule is supported by the right hand or the might of God himself. He would sit right next to God. He would be a priest who has God's ear who can successfully obtain God's favor for his people. When Paul says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, he's saying that Jesus is that priest king. Jesus is the king who rules with God's own authority. Jesus is the final eternal priest whose work is finished so he can have a seat right next to God the Father. Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised. Jesus is seated at God's right hand. Fourth thing to see about Jesus in this passage is that Jesus is presently hidden, but will one day appear. Jesus is presently hidden, but will one day appear. Look there in verse 3. Paul tells the Colossians there at the end of verse 3, he says, your life is hidden with Christ. If something is hidden with Christ, the clear implication is that Christ himself is currently hidden. Look at verse 4. Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul describes the Lord Jesus as presently hidden, but soon to appear in glory. Very interesting Those words, hidden and appearing, those exact words appear in chapter 1, verse 26, when Paul says that in the Old Testament, the gospel was hidden. The mystery of Jesus was at work, but not yet fully manifest. And that in the gospel, in the coming and the life and the death of resurrection, the gospel, the mystery has appeared. The gospel used to be hidden, now it's appeared. It was always true. Jesus is king. Believe it. Bet on it. But now, he's hidden. But soon, he will be revealed. Right? Paul's point is, Jesus is alive with everlasting resurrection life. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, wielding all authority on heaven and on earth. Jesus is the perfect priest whose finished work fully reconciles sinful people to a holy God. But right now, we can't see Jesus. He is hidden from us. He's in heaven. And to be clear, Jesus is in a real created place. Heaven is not imaginary. Heaven is not code for this is just an idea. Jesus did not evaporate into nothingness. Jesus ascended into the unseen realm, which the Bible teaches is every bit as real as ours, called heaven. He's there right now. Because he's in heaven, he's presently hidden. That makes sense of some things that we see in our world today, right? Looking, for, looking at the world, you might conclude that it isn't ruled by King Jesus. Some things look like that. 
Just from looking at the church, sometimes you might conclude that Jesus really hasn't made his church into a glorious new creation. But that's not because these things aren't so. It's because Jesus is hidden. But Paul says one day he will appear. Right? As we confessed in the Nicene Creed, Jesus will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. But until he returns, he remains hidden. Jesus has died. Jesus is alive. Jesus sits at God's right hand. Jesus is currently hidden, but will soon be revealed in glory. That's our first point. I'm sure you notice as we read through those verses, Paul connects everything that he says about Jesus inextricably and directly with what he says about us, with what he says about everyone who has turned from sin to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul say about us? You won't be surprised. Well, first, Paul says that we have died with Jesus. We have died with Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? For you have died. Members of Franconia Baptist Church, beloved, congratulations, you have died. But you haven't just died, right? Look back at Colossians 2.20. Look at what it says there in the first few words. It says, if with Christ you died. You have died, beloved, with the Lord Jesus. We've mentioned this before in our series on Colossians. Paul is alluding to the New Testament teaching of union with Christ. That is to say the truth that all who trust in Jesus Christ get united to Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying here is that if you belong to Jesus, Jesus' death counts for you. It's even true to say, in a sense, that you've died with him. The penalty, the curse, the wrath that was due to us for our sin, for cutting ourselves off from the God of life, that wrath, that curse has been exhausted by the death of Jesus on the cross. The enslaving reign of sin in the life of believers. Sin's force as a power of death to enslave us and to ruin our lives. That bondage has been broken by the death of Jesus for all who know him. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Old Testament way of relating to God through shadows and types, through external rituals. Well, Paul is also saying we've died to that old world. That's not how we relate to God anymore because of Jesus. We've died with Jesus What's even better news is that Paul teaches here that we've been made alive with Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. Paul uses that word if here. He is not in doubt. This is the if of logic. Paul is saying, since you have been raised with Christ, X, Y, Z. Brothers and sisters, you're not ready for this. Jesus is now alive with indestructible resurrection life. Jesus is alive with life that consists in full communion with the God of life. And Paul is saying that if you're united to Jesus, so are you. 
You are alive with resurrection life right now in your innermost being. If you are a Christian, then at the very deepest level, you're alive with new life. Life that consists in being in relationship with the living God. You've been plugged back into the power source. You've been reconnected to the fountain of living waters. Christian, listen, Jesus has unleashed a life in you that one day will transform you totally and completely into the perfect image of God. So brothers and sisters, are there things that you don't like about yourself? I'm not talking about the surface things. Are there things about your heart, about your character, uh, that by God's grace you hate because they're wrong? Do you see pride in yourself that you know is offensive to God? I do. Do you see irritability that you know to be sinful and destructive? Do you see lust that perverts God's good design for sexuality and leads to depraved craving? Do you see self-absorption? Do you see hypersensitivity? Brothers and sisters, next week, Lord permitting, we will talk about the duty that we have as Christians to put sin to death. We have work to do by God's grace, because of his grace, through his grace. But for now, know this. If you've been made alive with Jesus, one day your whole being will pulsate with the perfect life of Jesus. If you're in Christ, one day you will be holy like he is holy. You will be good like he is good. You will be loving like he is loving. You will be pure like he is pure because you've been raised with Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Well, if that's what we've got coming, we should just chill out, right? God's going to fix it. No, what's the next verse? And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christian, you have died with Jesus. You have been made alive with Jesus Christ's own resurrection life. Praise the Lord. More than that, you've been exalted with Jesus. Jesus wasn't just raised from the dead to walk around on earth again. He was raised to be seated at the right hand of God. And now, mysteriously, Paul says there in verse 3 that our life is hidden with Christ in God, at the right hand of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 says this even more explicitly. <clears throat> Paul writes there that God has raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you remember from the Old Testament law what the high priest wore on his body when he went to minister in the holy place? Do you remember what was graven on his heart? 
He wore the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on stones on his shoulders and on his chest, the Bible says, to bring the people of Israel to regular remembrance before the Lord as he served God with the worship that was acceptable to him in the holy place. So that as the priest entered God's presence and earned God's favor, God's favor would be toward his people. Christian, when God the Father looks to his right, he sees your high priest. He sees your advocate. He sees someone who is supremely dear to him and someone who is indestructibly united and committed to you. He sees Jesus Christ and he sees your life wrapped up with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's why you're secure. That's why you're safe. That's why you're okay and approved. It's not because nothing painful is going to happen to you on earth. It's not because you have enough money or insurance. It's not because someone here on earth loves you and would never leave you. You're safe and secure because your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen, this is how our forefathers in the faith put it in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question of the Catechism says this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's the answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Saints, we have died with Jesus. We have been raised with Jesus. We have been exalted with Jesus. These are glorious truths, and we need to be on guard against those who would pervert them. Many self-proclaimed Bible teachers on TV, on TBN, will twist this good news into a worldly message. They will say that because Christians have died and been raised and exalted with King Jesus, Christians can totally overcome all of their sins now in this life just by believing hard enough and sowing a seed of faith to my ministry. Christians are exalted together with Jesus, so if they're living life right, they'll never get sick or face suffering. Christians should always have plenty of money because they're united to the King of Kings, ought to be able to live like princes, like the royalty that they are. Listen, Paul tells us glorious things that are true about believers in this passage. But look again at verse 3. He says that our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Saints, like Jesus... The fullness of what we have received in him is currently hidden. It's real. It affects us. It empowers real change and obedience and hope and joy. But right now, it's hidden. Let me read 1 John 3, 2 to 3 again. Uh, pay attention to the timing words. Beloved, we are God's children now, right now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when in the future he appears, we shall be like him in the future because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in the future, hopes right now in a future, in him, purifies in the present himself as he is pure. Christian, listen, the reign of sin in your life is broken, and you are alive with the resurrection of Jesus. Right now, you live under the unlosable favor of God. You have been made a glorious new creation. And just like the mystery of the gospel was real, but not yet fully present in the Old Testament, just like Jesus first suffered with his glory veiled and then was exalted after his death, so it is with us. All that we've received in Jesus isn't yet on full display. But the promise of God's word is that one day it will be. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then, Christian, you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus has been seated at God's right hand. Jesus is presently hidden. Jesus will soon appear in glory. We have died with Jesus. We have risen with Jesus. We've been exalted with Jesus. Our glorious new life in Jesus is presently hidden. But when Jesus appears, we will appear with him in glory. That's what Paul tells us about us in this passage. So what does Paul tell us to do, given that these things are true? Third point, final point, shortest point. Two commands. They're very similar. They're both in verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Paul cannot be telling us here, don't give any mental attention to anything happening on planet earth. Paul cannot be telling us, don't spend any time thinking about your job or your marriage or the well-being of your kids or food or friendship. Just read the rest of Colossians. Just read the rest of chapter 3. That can't be what Paul means. Here's what I think Paul means. Paul means that when we x-ray our hearts, it should be, brothers and sisters, that our affections and that our attention, our desiring and our thinking must be fixed on all that Paul has told us about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape? My life is hidden with Christ in God. Whose performance matters? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Atonement accomplished. Priestly work complete. Ruling supreme. Whose opinion of you counts? Who must you please? I must please Jesus Christ and the God at whose right hand he sits. What do you think about most often? What do you read about 
every day in the scriptures? What do you spend hours on Sunday morning singing and hearing about? The things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. All that Jesus is, all that he says, all that he does, all that he promises. Where do you bank your hopes? When Christ appears, I will appear with him in glory. You remember the last question? How do you define who you are? Christ is my life, says Paul. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that as God renews our mind by corporate worship, by the reading of his word, by his providence, by the sufferings he brings into our life, by our speaking of the word to one another, by our singing in a few minutes, let's pray that God would grant us hearts and minds set on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have set our minds on earthly things. God, we have looked to your gifts, Lord, and even to sinful pleasures as gods. We've forsaken the fountain of living waters. God, forgive us. Lord, thank you that Jesus Christ has died in our place, was raised with us, is seated at your right hand, securing us your favor. Thank you that Jesus Christ, though now hidden, will one day appear in glory and we with him. God, thank you that because of your great mercy, Jesus Christ is our life. God, would you renew our minds so that our affections and our attention are fixed on the things above. Lord, forgive us, help us, change us. Unite our hearts to fear your name. We ask these things through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.